0: Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts and Station Hill Press. If you want to reach us, email bc at stationhill.org. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network. We're live on WCAA and on the Pacifica Radio Network. We're available on most podcast venues, and that's all I got. Enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarron, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So here we are for another session of Baffling Combustions, and my name is Sam Truitt. And I am Sparrow. And my name is Andrew McCarran. And we're here to play... No, we're not playing Hollywood Squares today. Ha, we're ha, ha. on with our investigation of the Proverbs of Hell from William Blake's Marriage of Heaven and Hell. And I think this is our fifth installment. And I wanted to point out that uh, we're about a fifth of the way through. Oh, really? So, So you're saying that Violet is hearing a voice in her head whom she defines as a divine emissary or is God him, him uh, itself
1: I mean I think she has some what's the word uh you know distance from it I mean she doesn't believe it 100% but she does you know she asks God for help and sometimes God answers yeah, like I talk to my trees, and uh, my trees sort of give me advice. You know, I'm a more uh, kind of a, at this point, sort of a pagan, and she's more of a, uh, whatever the word is, uh, Christian. In <laughs> the prophetic tradition. Yeah, or whatever. The prophetic the, of receiving, witnessing. Of. And uh, maybe it's sort of some version of the Holy Spirit. I don't know that the Christian scientists have that concept of the Holy Spirit. But, um, yeah, I think that, yeah, she she kind of thinks that God, and it seems like God, you know, from what she tells me,
0: is giving her pretty good advice.
2: Well, I mean, Blake is very
0: definite in these coming proverbs regarding his size and shape.
1: It does seem like these animals... Are some sort of symbols, the pride of the peacock, the lust of the goat, the, the wrath
3: of the lion,
0: the nakedness the of woman, the work of God. And you have these series of, um, the nature uh, of the properties of God, which are bounty, wisdom, glory, which are glory bounty, wisdom, and work. Yeah. The wrath of the lion is the wisdom
1: of God. That's the one we haven't read yet. And all of these are, uh, sins, more or less. Do you know, uh, Andrew, the seven deadly sins are pride, lust, wrath, nakedness. Uh, it's not one of them. That's
4: Um, uh, or, uh, sloth?
1: Hmm. Is sloth one? Sounds right. I don't know. I don't know the seven deadly sins. Uh, yeah. um, is pride one? Lust
4: one? Let me see. I'm gonna look it up. Uh,
0: oh, I know the seven deadly sins. You do? Yeah, I think so. There's uh, pride. pride, lust, wrath, sloth, sloth, gluttony, greed, uh, greed, oh, and, I good. Think and murder. <laughs> Murder. Murder, I think there's Doesn't sound like a adultery, sense. I think is one. They're, uh,
4: pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, and sloth.
3: Huh. So does Scott.
1: Okay. So we've got a lot of them, uh, here in these, uh, series of four Proverbs, one, two, three, four.
0: <laughs> pride, and lust, what is the- wrath. And what are the virtues? Um the correspond- virtues? the corresponding
4: virtues are humility, charity, chastity, hmm. gratitude, temperance,
1: patience, and diligence. Well, diligence is a little close to work. The nakedness of woman is the work of God. I was seated. Diligence is a little bit close to work. So really uh Blake is turning all these sins on their heads and saying that pride is the glory of God. Lust is the bounty of God. Wrath is the wisdom of God. Nakedness is the work of God. Except he's using animals
0: and then woman. (laughs) And I would also posit that he's using nature as Mm -hmm. God. Mm. Um nature you know, is, is and also including its sort of cognate um you know innatus to be born, mm. you know, that which is spontaneous, that which is um new mm. Mm. um that which naturally arises, um you know, which strikes me as sort of an antithesis of some of the preceding passage that we read. Like he's really I mean, kind of blowing out a little bit. It reminds me a little bit of the the
1: what is it? The footnote to Howl by Allen Ginsberg, where he says, "Holy, holy, 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 everything yeah. is holy. Your cock is holy.
3: <laughs>
4: yeah, everything that's like um, stigmatized and dirty and impure is rendered holy in the footnote, and the footnote is the foundational note, it's like the a bedrock." of the theology of Hal if you could call it that, right? It's, uh, mm. it's at the feet, it's at the foundation, it's at the bottom, it's at the ground level. It, it runs under it all.
1: And yet the New American Poetry Anthology, if that was the name of it correctly, somebody, Donald Hall, something Hall, compiled it and he like conspicuously left out the footnote to how, yeah. as if to say, well, you know, this is not real art. This is just babble you know but i agree with you i mean we used to have when i was a teenager my friends and i would get together on new year's eve and we'd always read how collectively as uh, almost like a religious text almost like you read the haggadah in uh, on passover uh, if you're jewish we would pass it from person to person and each person would read one section and then when we would get to the footnote Maybe we would swiftly pass it around the table. Each person would take one holy, 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 holy. Cool. Yeah, it was a a ritual that I'm sure we thought we would do forever. And then by the time we were about 22, we stopped, or you could say
0: outgrew it. Maybe we should do it now.
1: I know. Now I want to do it. Because I'm also going through a Ginsberg period, I I bought this, or I sort of found this book at a stoop sale next to my dad's house, the uncollected poems of Allen Ginsberg, and I just read it. like I just read it like you read a novel really fast, and I loved it. I I thought I was kind of sick of Ginsberg, but these were all kind of outtakes, poems, and one of them I published. (laughs) I had this... At the editorship of this magazine, City Magazine, published by the City College Graduate School of Creative Writing, I sort of inherited this grant from some guy who disappeared to Italy. And and I got an original poem from Ginsburg. And uh, it was never published in his collected poems, but it's in this book that I have.
0: Cool, and it's nice. a
1: great poem.
0: So yeah. how many so how many howls uh, uh, how many holies are there and we should do it now
1: and also Ginsburg you know loved Blake and his work comes directly out of this vision he had of Blake
4: right uh, when God. he was when he was reading sunflower. the sunflower holy 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 holy
0: holy right. holy holy okay. All right, so we'll uh, we'll synchronize with Ginsberg reading Powell. We'll Powell with him.
2: (laughs) Holy New York, holy San Francisco, holy Peoria in Seattle, holy Boulder, holy Paris, holy Tangier, holy Moscow, holy Istanbul. That's like, you know. uh... In whom I sit lonely. Moloch, in whom I dream angels. Crazy in Moloch sucker in Moloch, black love and menless in Moloch, Moloch who entered my soul early, Moloch who frightened oh, me out of my natural ecstasy, Moloch whom I abandoned, put to, waving, carrying flowers down to the river, into the street. Now, I think. Carl Solomon, I'm with you in Rockland <laughs> where you're madder than I am. I'm with you in Rockland where you must feel very strange. I'm with you in Rockland where you imitate <laughs> the sheep, Imaginary walls collapse. Oh skinny legions, run outside. Oh, star, east spangled shock of mercy. The eternal war is here. Oh, victory, forget your underwear. We're free. I'm with you in Rockland in my dreams, you walk dripping from a sea journey on the highway across America in tears to the door of my cottage in the western night. Yeah. So now we're
0: forging on, and mm-hmm. I believe that we went through like a slalom of attributions of the nature of God. Mm-hmm. Um God's repeated four times. Um So, I guess, just in terms of parataxis, is that what we call it? Or, you know, just location. We're talking about the nature of God. Mm. Yeah. And the last one we hit was the nakedness of woman is the work of God. Here, here. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Um I think the 19th century was all about the investigation of that, you know, in painting, variously, hmm. um, you know, in France. Before that, too, there were naked women, I'm not sure. There were. In fact, I think in our in our last session, we evoked the figurine from not Dusseldorf, but... Um, the Venus of what? Venus of Willendorf. Yes, yes, and there we go, yeah, so for sure,
1: yeah, right. Some of the first art ever made was the art of buxom and large, almost spherical uh naked women
4: and uh, I know that William Blake and his wife, Catherine, were naturalists,
1: mm-hmm. nudists, what they, we would say,
4: they enjoyed going around with wearing nothing but a smile. <laughs> the anecdote that I read somewhere of a friend dropping by and, uh the Blakes and discovering them in the raw naked reading Paradise Lost.
3: Huh.
1: I've been Makes there. Makes sense, really.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm really looking at an internalized model. I've never seen it. I've never mm. been to Willendorf. And I, I may be colouring it, you know, just um freewheeling with imagining what the real Venus looks like. What is what does Venus and what does and in what respect and how can that question, you know, what does the nakedness of woman how is that related to the face of God? Yeah.
4: Well it's it's the work of God, not the face of
0: God. Yeah. I know, but he's had some work done. You know, like his face, he's, you know, I I, I apologize, you're correct. <laughs> and I was aware that it was work, but... Uh, but I think it says in the Bible
1: that we are made in the image of God. So, in a sense, the naked woman is, is God, is the, whatever image of God means.
0: Uh-huh. When all of the shields... When all of the walls are removed from the light of our imagination, what will be revealed is the nakedness of woman. Mm.
4: Now, Sparrow, have, have have you ever been uh, a naturalist, uh,
1: a nudist, in your? Uh... Um, well, I did go to the rainbow gathering a couple of times where a lot of people are nude, but I think I would tend to wear my uh, Lungoda, you know, in my group, my meditation society, the Ananda Marga Society. We wear these uh, men, wear a particular type of underwear. I don't know if I've discussed it many times in these podcasts, but I would tend to Where my, uh, as I recall, I would be naked except for my Lungoda, which is covering
0: my private parts. Uh, Sparrow, are you wearing your Lungoda now?
1: Yeah. I'm pretty much, you know, almost always wear it. I wear it to go to sleep at night. The only time I took
0: it... um, When you're just lounging around the house, do you, like in weather like this, it's very humid. Do you? strip down to the Lungoda and um, relax into the essence? Uh,
1: not usually. I have a pair of shorts I got, I think, from my mother or somewhere. And I wear my shorts around the house in case somebody stops by. I don't know. But, I mean, sometimes I don't wear my Lungoda. Like, sometimes if my back is hurting a little bit, it uh, feels better to take off the Lungoda.
0: So the Lungoda like a a cloth that you wrap around or is it a garment it it's, yeah, it's a cloth, its it's a
1: cloth yeah. that you wrap around it's a little bit the most similar uh garment to it is a what are those things called that you wear when you when you play ball if you're a uh, jock an strap. Happily, strap a jock strap yeah it's like a it's kind of like a a yogic version of a jock strap it keeps your penis oh, up good. and your uh, your testicles up. And uh, huh. and the, the one reason I I stopped wearing it, my old friend from high school, Richard Kahn, I was telling him that I couldn't, was trying to conceive a child with my wife and I was failing. And he said, it's that thing you wear. You've got to stop wearing it. Boiling your sperm. It's bringing your testicles up. Against your body and, and increasing the the temperature of your um, um, testicles and I, it killing the sperm. Was he adjusted? Did you did you, did you conceive? Yeah, it worked. I mean, my wife bought me these boxer shorts, and I wore them for a couple of weeks, not for very long, as I recall. And then uh, we, uh, my wife conceived a child. Like it worked exactly as Richard predicted. I mean whether it really happened that you know, whether it was just a coincidence or something else, who can say? But uh, but I'm I'm kind of used to wearing a lungota It feels right to me to wear a lungota It makes me feel kind of organized, kinda
0: of hard to describe in words. Sam, do you wear Ooh. I'm not wearing any underwear. I, I like um Tom Ford, stew underwear, we find it to be to interfere with the integrity of the, the line and the silhouette.
3: Yeah. Tom
0: Ford. The, the, uh, fashion
4: designer. He's, he's like, a
0: designer. He's gone into making films, which I, I appreciate his films. They have a certain style. Let's face it. How about you? I mean, I sort of see you, Andrew, as a boxers man. Yeah. I wear boxer shorts. So maybe we should move to the next line. Yeah, I think we should probably.
1: Even though it's a shame we haven't really gotten anywhere with the nakedness of woman as the work of God. I think it's, I mean, one thought that I had, I don't know if I said this last week, is that God in the Bible creates woman and he creates her naked. So in a very literal sense, the nakedness of woman is the work of God. And it was only when the Adam and Eve disobeyed God that they suddenly got the idea that they should wear clothes.
4: Right, that shame, shame was introduced into the
1: equation. Yeah, and I think that maybe all these, uh, come to think of it, all these four attributes, the lust of the goat is the bounty of God, the pride of the peacock is the glory of God, the wrath of the lion is the wisdom of God, they really are kind of all about shame how we've been trained by Christianity or religion or whatever you want to call it, the uh, superego to feel ashamed of our pride, of our lust, of our wrath, of our nakedness.
0: Uh, I think that's a very interesting point, and I think that that does constitute that set. So in a way, the the wild beast is um, part of the image system of Christianity, right? And then... um, and the, line the nakedness of, of woman? I think, you know, your point, Sparrow, yeah, God created woman as naked. Yeah, so I don't know.
1: Certainly, if you went up to yeah. whatever they're called now, evangelicals, which I don't like that term, um, today and read
0: them these four Proverbs, I'm sure they would be appalled. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah, but it's interesting, you know, too, that we could go into the criticism of the time at which the marriage of heaven and hell appeared, and you know what was said of it. I don't think much. Maybe answering your question, he was um, radical when it came to his beliefs about
4: nudity and free love. So may- may- maybe all of this would have been um,
1: controversial, upsetting. Yeah. I mean one of the things I was thinking about in the last few days as we were preparing to meet again was how radical the phrase proverbs of hell must have been back then even now it's a little alarming when you read it and uh, yeah and I was thinking like today it would be a little bit like writing a book called the wisdom of al-Qaeda and you would just put in all sorts of brilliant ideas and attribute them to Al-Qaeda. And people would would be upset by
2: that. Yeah,
0: I like the shape of that. Well, I think the wonder is that we can just, you know, go to the next line. Let's do it. I, All right. it. I think it's your turn, Andrew. Excess of sorrow
1: laughs, excess of joy weeps.
0: Yeah. Kind of interesting that there's a period between them and not a semicolon. Here he's really focusing on the verb, the differentiation of, of weeping and laughing. And then, you know, obviously he's doing a kind of reversal, whereas conventionally, you know, joy laughs and sorrow weeps. Mm. So he's kind of... um reaching into the associative, emotional gearbox to point something <laughs> out. It's also
1: interesting that it's the excess. It's an interesting word to use, excess of sorrow.
3: Laughs.
1: Like if there's too much sorrow, it, it, it laughs. Too much joy weeps, whatever excess Rather than just yeah, you could say extreme sorrow laughs, extreme joy weeps. But using the word excess suggests that there's sort of a, a correct amount I mean linguistically or whatever, syntactically it seems to be saying there's a correct amount of joy, and when you go over that too much joy, then you end up weeping.
0: Yeah, I think what he's pointing toward is that joy And sorrow are in the same house and that when you hit the top of the key of sorrow Mm. you go over into another state like you you know you're overwhelmed you're you're turned upside down um and you know ditto with joy you know it ends in this weeping um As, you know, we may have experienced at some point in our lives. Hmm. I can't remember ever weeping for joy.
1: Um, Well, I mean, maybe when I'm manipulated by a Disney movie. When I'm watching The Little Mermaid or something. And something very heartbreakingly compassionate happens maybe I get tears in my eyes I'm watching uh, did I tell you I'm watching um, midnight diner it's this Japanese
3: oh yeah
1: uh, Netflix show and uh, you know a lot of it is about it's, it's about this diner that's sort of run by this guy who seems like he might be kind of an enlightened being and he I- intervenes in a very indirect way usually to help Someone find the truth, and then I get sort of tears in my eyes that could arguably be called excess of joy weeping.
0: Do you identify with this character Sparrow, and feel uh, some part of yourself might have been most realized as a a counter um, short order a sous chef, or um, you know? I mean, you know, I have.
1: I've had the fantasy of working in a taco joint, you know, like a taco, what do you call it, one of those, not a truck, a taco stand. I mean, that has been a fantasy of mine and maybe an ice cream stand, but no, I don't really, I don't think I'm identifying with this guy. I don't know with whom exactly I'm identifying. Maybe with the troubled, latest troubled person. The tongue tied uh, nerd who can't get you up know, the courage to talk to the pretty girl, the kind of character
0: in the show. Yeah, I don't he's know. He's very handsome, the counter guy. and um, Yes, in a rugged, kind of manly, kind of working class way. Yeah, but also very reticent and sort of shy around mm. his uh, around women I noticed you know very courtly um very honorable and uh
3: yeah
1: yeah although if you watch lots and lots of the show in one of the recent episodes there was a woman who was a porn star and at the end of the show you see this enlightened uh, chef uh looking through a magazine of her naked pictures and looking kind of embarrassed. So he has has moments. And at the end of the first season, there's a woman that comes in, a kind of a gorgeous woman, maybe in her 40s or 50s. And she kind of, she makes some overture to him. Why don't you come to my house where we'll celebrate the new year? And he says, no, no, no. And then she walks out and then he rushes out after her. Into the street, he realizes he made a terrible mistake. So there's there's moments where
0: he has kind of stirrings of attraction to women, but he rushes out into the street and she's not there. It's or not, she's uh, gone. That's, he,
1: yeah, that's the end of the whole season.
4: Yeah, I uh, know it someone sounds, who was going through a hard time. She had broken out of a relationship. 14 years, Oh she entered into a sorrowful state, despondent really, and she did find um, someone who she was dating, and they made love, and it was the first time in a very long period of time that she had been intimate with someone else, Mm. and she reported that she was laughing and crying at the same time during the act of love, and that it really freaked out a new
3: boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Guys
1: so, don't like to have sex with women while they're crying. And That's la- been my experience based on and, myself.
4: Crying and laughing at the same time. And something about this uh, proverb reminded me of that mm. excess of sorrow will lead to uh, maybe... I mean, we need to be balanced emotionally. I think oh. my own study of human psychology and mm-hmm. Through my experience of being human, the one thing that I feel that people struggle with is um, the repression of like, or Repression of like what? The, the channeling of all emotions into a single emotion. Like I have a good friend who's angry all the time. And I'm oh. certain that the, there's a lot that's being channeled into that anger. That if mm-hmm. he were laugh a little bit more or cry, he would be less pissed off at it. Oh. So, I think there's a psychological theory, a psycho-emotional theory um, present across these two
1: proverbs. You seem to be saying that we needed sort of balance.
4: Yeah, some balance, integration of um, multiple emotional states, the ability to emote across a range of emotional um,
1: modes.
3: Mm,
4: Rather
1: than getting stuck in one like your friend.
4: One, you know, you're always depressed, upset, or, or one of these people who's always positive. I worked with someone, I asked her, Oh, you know, how was your summer? Oh, it was just fine. <laughs> 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 oh, how was cool? oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I know that there's more to it than that, but I, I want, yeah, I just, uh, I, I, that for me, that's a red flag. Or or the friend who I mentioned was a, Who's ornery all the time? He's, he's angry about the world and angry at other people and angry at himself.
1: Mm. Yeah, if anything, uh-huh. I think I have that excess of positivity problem. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't really enjoy complaining. I, I you know, people ask me how I'm, I'm doing, and I say I'm doing great. Uh, you know, I I tend to see the positive. Maybe I'm repressing no doubt I'm repressing some you've gone you've walked through the valley of the shadow of death,
4: you've gone through difficult periods in life.
1: Hmm. No?
4: Well you
3: I guess so, yeah. I mean I
1: have had one or two difficult moments with family members and so forth. With my father when he tried to kill himself. When did your dad
4: try to kill himself?
1: Oh, maybe six years ago, five years ago. No kidding.
4: I'm sorry. I never told you that.
1: No. No. Oh, it's a crazy story. But anyway, yeah, I was there. and I was kind of like, maybe I can't talk about this or I'll go to prison. But anyway, yeah, I was kind of part of his whole suicide plan. He sort of swore me to secrecy and to sort of um, watch over him and help him die, which I agreed to do. Thank God he didn't die. But it was a long, it was a dark night of the soul, literally. Ah. Do you You think,
4: does he feel um, happy that it didn't happen now?
3: uh,
1: You know, he doesn't talk about it, but he later, you know, he's a psychologist, so he later diagnosed himself with temporary psychosis. So I think he, yeah, I think, I mean, it really seemed to transform him, actually. He saw God, and it seemed like like his life kind of changed as a result of that, you know, for the better. Like, he kind of, kind of figured out why he's alive,
4: in a way. You saw him recently, Sparrow. You were just in your Yeah, I saw him like
1: two days ago. How is he doing? Well, he's going blind. He's 102. He's already pretty deaf. He's pretty, uh, you know, unable to communicate with the world much and to watch movies, which is what he's been doing for the last 25 years. He just listens to his neighbor as an occupational therapist, and she found these channels on TV that just play music so he listens to music he occasionally looks at a book for you know a half a minute uh, with his uh, one of his uh, magnifying glasses you know he said recently he said I spend a lot of time inventing scenarios <laughs> he said if you know anyone that you know wants to make a movie uh, they can talk to me I think, you know, he's sort of writing movies in his mind. I don't know. I mean, when you talk to him, he talks about the past a lot. He doesn't know much about the present. He's a big fan of Joe Biden, but he can't really follow the the latest politics. And it's really hard to communicate with him. I mean, I scream into his ear, the ear with the uh, hearing aid in it, and he understands a little of what I'm saying, but not much.
4: What about books on tape and that kind
1: of thing? Not loud enough. You know, but he seems to be in this kind of state of sort of a dreamy state, but he's not, doesn't really have dementia in any way. that He he repeats himself, but I don't think he has. Well, you know, I might be in denial, but I don't think he has dementia. I think he's just, you know, it's sort of this is now that people live forever, you can see the process of dissociating from your body in slow motion, you know, and, and he's kind of moving into another realm kind of
0: slowly. Interesting.
1: Yeah. And, you know, he's sort of content with that, but he's very appreciative, very positive. He's very grateful for everything
0: that every. Everybody does for him. So in terms of his existence, this suicide attempt that got foiled in some way proved to be like an afterburner catalyst towards some like he broke through the outer layer, the heliosphere of the atmosphere, and he was able to like get beyond somehow and had some some time, eyeball to eyeball, with the divine. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah, it seemed like it, yeah. He,
1: well, the story he told, he later changed it to Moses. But at first he said that he saw God. I mean, I heard him tell the story like 26 times, but he said he saw God. God was wearing a big Rolex. always you know, That was always part of the story. And there's a long line of people waiting to see God. And my father goes up to God. He said, gets on the line, I guess, and goes up to God, and he says, "All I want to do is praise you." And God says, "Don't waste my time." Uh, or it went, in my favorite version of it, God says to him, "Don't be a nudnik. Don't be a fool." And then God turns to the next person on line and says, "Next." So like. Like, it was like, it wasn't his time, you know. I mean, that's how I took it. It wasn't my dad's time to enter the kingdom of heaven. It was his time to come back to the earth. That's where he belongs. And I think he just sort of understands, you know, it's interesting. I mean, it's like, what what are we all doing on earth? I mean, I don't do much. You know, uh, I'm Andrew, you know, you're a father, a husband, a, you have a demanding job, you're in this podcast, you're writing a book, and Sam, you know, you're directing an important publishing company, preparing for a new, whole new career, moving to New York City. But, you know, I do very little, and that way I'm a lot like my dad. But it's kind of like the universe is telling you what to do if you just have the humility to listen. And I think my father sort of understands that he's there sitting on his couch. People come by, and he's delighted to see them. My friend Jeffrey, whom I've known since uh, fifth grade, came to visit with his wife, Anne, uh, on Saturday. And my father was so pleased to see them. He used to ridicule them used to say they, they were the most, well, I better not tell this story in case they listen to this podcast, but it's, I've already gone too far. But now he loves them. Now he appreciates them. Now he can see into their heart. And they have wonderful hearts, you know. And you just wait. You wait until it's clear what you're supposed to be doing, and then you do it. I think that's what my father learned. You just wait for your – it's like – um it's like being in a play where you sit in the backstage and you wait for your your part to come up in the, in the third act, you know. You just wait for the moment that you're needed. Anyway, that's I love it.
0: it. Yeah. He, um, when your dad was approaching God and he was in that line, what was the landscape like? Did he talk <laughs> about what was around um God. Never discussed it. Like, Never discussed it. God. I think the
1: only thing I vaguely remember him saying is that there was a really long line of people. I mean, it's kind of how my dad sees the world. You know, he's always quoting this book, famous book uh, of some sort of Yiddish-oriented Jewish book called "Life Is with People," which I think is a translation of a Yiddish proverb. You know, my father sort of sees people as being the central mm, factor in life, not the landscape. My mother was kind of a lover of landscape. Uh, And we'd be driving somewhere and she'd look out the uh, window and she'd say, look at that. Isn't that beautiful? And my father would ridicule her. He'd say, uh, he would quote this line from... uh, Yogi Bear cartoons, where the tourists are driving through Yellowstone, Jell-O, Jellystone National Park, and they're saying, look at the bears, look at the bears. And my father would say it in that funny voice. Look at the bears, look at the bears. Like like, like there was something kind of weak about my mother's aesthetic appreciation of the world. Something <laughs> <laughs> <Very> deficient. <laughs> kind of lacking in real... Uh, Marxist uh,
0: validity. (laughs) The one thing that occurred to me is that if I was in that line, I would hope that I'd have the presence of mind to leave the line and and go wander off and check out the landscape. Hmm. Maybe you can see a lot from that line. You
1: don't even have to leave the line. I don't
4: know. Did your dad believe in God before this?
1: I mean, he always presented himself as a total atheist.
3: I mean, certainly
1: hates religion, has always hated religion. He's always talking about how religion is absolutely reactionary. It just uh, supports capitalism, the state. You know, but then he said in the midst of this, I think after he came back from the dead, he said, uh, he said, you know, every night I pray for... All of you. And he implied, like, for the whole family. He said he started doing it during World War II. He was in the Navy in World War II. And he said ever since he's been praying every night. I don't know if that's true. I mean, and then one time I said to him, I always thought mom was an atheist. My mother seemed, my mother was raised Mennonite and was raised, you know, very much in this extremely dogmatic fundamentalist religion or anyway, that's how she perceived it um i said to my dad you know a few months ago i said i always thought mom was an atheist and he said i don't know i'm not sure that she was and in other words he's married to her for 60 years 68 years and he doesn't know whether or not she believed in god and that's kind of how his generation was. Like that was something you didn't talk about. It was kind of embarrassing, too personal, irrelevant. Mm. I don't know.
0: I, I was also struck by what your father said to God when it was his turn, uh, relative to all I have ever done is praise you or I all, all I, I want you. to do is praise you. All I want to do is praise you. Where did that come from?
1: I know. Like, I mean was he maybe, like
0: it, figuring that's what he was supposed to say, or was it It's very uncharacteristic of him to praise
1: anybody. I mean he's a kind of a whatever quetcher, you know, a complainer or we well, an insulter of most people. But um I I mean the way he said it, I didn't get the feeling he was trying to like uh you know, suck up to God. I get the feeling he was really sincere about it. I kind of got the feeling from the way he told the story that when you're around God, you you change, and you have that devotional impulse that you don't have in normal life. That's how I took it. Do you think it was
4: Uh a uh, carryover from the Judaism of his youth? Because I know the, the... the central prayer of the Jewish liturgy is the Kaddish prayer,
3: and that's a mm-hmm. doxology.
4: And the whole prayer is full of um, praise of God.
3: Yeah, it's a good praising, point.
4: Praising the attributes. Of I God. mean,
1: I would, I would tend, if I had to say, there was a central prayer to Judaism. Also, maybe I just read this the other day in the the Chumash, the the book that kind of uh, gives the um, uh, criticism, gives the uh, Analysis of the Torah at the synagogue, but I would say that the Shema, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, is the central
3: prayer of Judaism. What I mean, mm. said, what's Kaddish, that?
4: The Kaddish is said um, every service,
3: no? Isn't Many there? times,
1: every service, yeah. And it's said, it said the most. Yeah,
0: I mean, just but hosing it down. It sort of sounds as though your father having entered into this situation you know in whatever form um maybe at that point he had was able to sort of deep six his personality Mm
3: -hmm.
0: and you know that his personality is made of that sort of gruff and you know hypercritical of other people you know kvetching this and that and that and that, that was the experience that he um, was able to strip away the walls or the shields of the lantern and let the light shine. I mean, it really felt
1: like that. He felt like he was a different person. He just felt transformed, especially for about two weeks. He and I would pray together. I'd bring him the prayer book that we had, that happened to have in the house, Jewish reformed Jewish prayer book, not much of a prayer book. We'd pray. He he, he was kind of, yeah, he was transfigured. It was really, i have never really seen it. I did see once my um, my sister used to work at the Rusk Institute, which is the NYU hospital for um, uh, spinal cord injuries. And there was a woman, and I would go there every week when I first moved back to the city in 78s. I would go and teach meditation every week to these uh, patients, spinal cord injured patients. And there was a woman there who was in, so I did that for, I don't know, a year, two years, maybe longer. And um, there was a woman who was in a coma, young woman who was there for like weeks, I think, in this coma. And one day I was there, I went there, and she had come out of the coma. And she was like, had like the aura of a saint like just like light was pouring out of her face and mm. uh, and uh, i can still see her in my mind lying in bed and my mm. father reminded me of that a little bit it's almost like the yogis uh, say uh, that there are these different there are different like sheaths of the mind different levels of the mind and when you reach into these like higher levels or deeper would be a better word deeper levels you get this kind of radiance. But most of us are so preoccupied with uh, little nonsense that we, we can't get very far
0: inside of ourselves. Uh-huh. As uh, Blake's contemporary, William Wordsworth, said, getting and spending, we lay waste our lives.
1: Mm-hmm. And I was going to say, yeah, my dad, in a way, his suicide attempt might have been an example of excess of sorrow, left, that he uh, must have been feeling pretty bad when he decided to end his life. And he ended up laughing. He ended up delighted. So it was kind of a case of the sorrow pushing him. Into kind of bliss.
4: So it didn't. It didn't work. Yeah, I mean, tried it, but it didn't work. It didn't work.
1: He cut himself once with a knife, uh, and there was blood all over his bed. And uh, and then, but he cut himself the wrong direction. Cut himself, uh, you know, uh, perpendicular to the to the artery, yeah, not just... along the artery. Well,
3: and. Yeah.
1: Uh, And then the next morning, he said to me, just wait. He said, wait 24 to 48 hours and then call the police. I said, if I wait 48 hours with a corpse, I'm going to go to prison. So he said, okay, here's what you do. He's like negotiating with me. Uh, You wait 12 hours, and tomorrow morning you, you call the police. Either way, something like that. So. Uh, the next morning, I I woke up at nine thirty in the morning. I, I promised I would come in at ten, so I like turned on my computer and edited my essays for a half hour. Then I went into my dad's room, and uh, I uh, he was alive. <laughs> so I called the ambulance, and my father said, "No, don't do that." I said, "Look, I have to. My my alibi is up." And then they, they took him to the hospital and I said, so you're going to give him stitches? And they said, well, we're, we're not sure. His, his cut had healed over the night. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> oh,
4: this is yeah, crazy. I'm, yeah, I'm speechless. I, I'm speechless.
3: Yeah, shame. I mean,
1: I don't know. I occasionally believe that, believe think that maybe my guru is watching over me and preventing me from completely wrecking my life. And uh, this, you know, is one of the main examples thereof. Although I'm not saying for sure that that's what happened. but Yeah, I mean, it was really a weird, you know, I mean, really nothing much happens to me. My I, Well, I used to argue endlessly with my wife and it was very unpleasant come to think of it, but hmm. Usually intense things don't happen to me, but this was one. How many years did you
4: argue with your wife or?
1: How many years? Yeah. At least 15, maybe 20. Okay. Terrible arguments. We always thought we were going to break up. Uh, I always thought we were going to break up. Yeah, like really. My daughter remembers them. So it's got to be at least, you know, when she was a kid. She's 29 now, so. You know, it's got to be at least uh, 20 years ago. And we've been married 32 years. But we were together before we got married a little few years. There was a shift in your marriage. Something something changed. Something something just suddenly changed. That we, like, suddenly stopped arguing with each other. And why? I don't think either of us know. It felt to me like we just exhausted ourselves. Like we just said every mean thing we could say to each other. I mean, really, it's not fair to say that because my wife is a big uh, retreater. You know, she's gives you the silent treatment. So she really very rarely attacked me. But she kind of almost like ran <laughs> out of silence. But we do use this method. Did I ever tell you this? We use the uh, imago technique. There's a book called Getting the Love You Want by Harville Hendricks. And it's there's a method in it, this sort of mirroring technique that's called Imago therapy might be the term. Yeah, I have,
4: a, I have a friend who was just talking to me about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, we still use it. I mean, we're kind of orthodox Imago therapy users. It was really good for us.
4: He claimed, yeah, my friend, um, colleague, he claimed that it
1: saved his relationship. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's that kind of a, a process where you feel. I saw the guy once I ran into. I met Harville Hendrix at the Omega Institute and he was sitting in a golf cart and I said to him, uh, you know, you saved my marriage. And he looked immensely bored. Like he's heard this thousands of times he's sick of it. And I think he's divorced. I think he's divorced for remarriage. <laughs> maybe it doesn't work on you if you invented it
3: <laughs>
1: but it's a great technique because uh, it sort of equalizes like as you can tell I never stop talking and my wife never starts talking so using the Imago technique gets me to stop talking and her to start talking
4: You early in our podcast you described your wife Violet Snow as, as a tree
1: Said she's very- <laughs> what do you mean? I said she's as silent as a tree. Silent as a tree. When I go to the city for like, did I tell you this? When I go to the city for like four days, I'll come back and she'll say, it's really hard to get used to you being back. You know, she's like so happy to not have me around, to be by herself. Here she comes. She's just coming back from keto. I better not shout
0: about her while she's in earshot. She'll hit you with the Aikido (laughs) stick.
1: Well, you know, the thing is I have to attack her first. That's what saves me from being Aikido'd into submission. That's how Aikido works. The other person attacks you and you use their own power against them. So since I never attack her, except verbally, and I don't even do that anymore. I never criticize her at all, except to you guys.
0: The one thing I was gonna say is I too have had that experience of laughing and crying simultaneously. What's the, fuck? What's the Karmapa? Yeah, it happened to me with the Karmapa some years ago. But can you can you round out this session by just sharing that anecdote? Yeah, sure. The Karmapa was coming. So I said to my wife, Oh, the Karmapa is coming. Let's go see him. And he was scheduled to appear at Como Park here in Woodstock. And so we went. But there were torrential rains, and there weren't any people there. So we understood that it had been canceled. But I said, oh, but, you know, we can go visit the Karmapa in his house. Hmm. So we drove up Mead Mountain Road and parked at KTD. And there weren't a lot of people. the parking lot was sort of conventionally full. There was a space we parked we went in we went into the k t d Gumpa or you know where there's the big golden Buddha, and mm. sat down and sort of got the lay of the land and then I guess I left or uh we both left. We both left and were you know uh, out front. And then a a monk came and I said, Oh, we've come to visit the Karmapa. We would like to see the Karmapa. And he and we explained our situation. We have children, or, you know, whatever. Silly so thing. And he said, Okay, I'll let the Karmapa know that he's been summoned. Or something of that nature. And um So we said, oh terrific, and we went back inside and sat down and looking at the golden Buddha and they're doing different things. And then we started to notice people with suits coming out behind the throne room, you know, behind Mm -hmm. the Karmapa's seat and so on and so forth. And then we quickly got the uptick that he was coming out, and out he came and sat down. And I don't have any direct connection with the kagyu lineage i think it is up there or you know this and that but i was totally of course interested in in meeting the karmapa seeing the karmapa and then he began to talk and spoke of you know how it is that um he was sorry that he couldn't go down and talk to everybody in woodstock and um so on and so forth and he's looking over at me you know, and so we're looking at each other, and then he's looking mm-hmm. at it all the other way, and then he comes back and he looks at me again, and slowly, you know, we're entering into a kind of mind to mind continuum, yeah, and then, um, uh, and then, you know, there are no questions in the presence of the master, and and I was laughing and crying simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, particularly at the end of the teaching, then he's leaving. And then it was really more immediately afterwards that I was aware that I was inside of this emotional body that was complete. Um, And the only articulation of it was this kind of simultaneous laughing and crying, Um, you know, and, and sort of laughing in a state of what I identified as joy. And um, feeling a- and weepy because I was aware of the um, uh, our, um, the brevity, um, mm. the um, the longing that we each may have to be at one with um, with what is and uh, beyond words.
4: Yeah, I would just point to uh, thank you for sharing that, Sam.
0: Yeah.
4: Um, yeah, I feel like I really received your words. Overfind your words profoundly. I haven't had um, an entirely analogous experience other than uh, the eight dreams that opened my consciousness uh last fall from October to uh February. Um caused me to feel in uh, ways that I think I hadn't been able to feel for decades, maybe since adolescence. Mm.
3: Uh,
4: and I do identify with those Blake Proverbs. I think there was an excess. I think I could describe emotion. I could feel some emotions, but not a, the full ecology of human emotion. And mm. it came out. I think there was an excess of something that led to um a cathartic series of experiences that I'm still yeah.
0: Still work. That will. you turned into those uh, visual works.
4: Yes. Eight dreams.
0: How many of them do you have now?
4: I have four, and I'm, I'm going to do all eight. There's eight dreams, and uh, I have two done.
0: No, I have two finished
4: completely, two that I started, and drafts of the uh, other four.
3: And what are they?
4: They're they're collages? Uh, I don't have one right here. Um, Word, uh, word, canvases, written in my script that tell the story of the dreams. Here's an example. Let's say just one more.
1: Oh, yeah. A lot of writing and a kind of a drawing that you made in the center.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Drawing in the center is compelling. For so much of my life, Recent years, I thought liberation integration if you if that's the right word would come as a result of external choices and um, things in the world. but uh, these eight dreams made me realize that the uh the real juice was internal mm, uhhuh the great transformation or whatever I was going through had less to do with credentialing or geography or action relationships that I might have previously realized. Mm.
0: Have more to do with internal research. Internal research, internal movement, yeah. Mm. Mm. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous And please join us next time, and remember to stay tuned and strange.